I don't know about you, but we're always looking for ways to get our kids involved and give back in our local community. That's why we're excited to tell you about Student Visionaries of the Year, a campaign by the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, which is the largest nonprofit organization dedicated to creating a world without blood cancers. Student Visionaries of the Year is a seven-week philanthropic leadership development program for high school students. Participants form strong teams and fundraise in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor in their local community. I would love for Violet to do this program when she's in high school. This program is transformative. It not only helps students develop valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship, not to mention it looks great on college applications, but most importantly, it's also a chance for them to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on blood cancer patients and their families. You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org slash students. That's lls.org slash students. So I just realized that as of this morning, I've done Fryman 28 times this year. You're more than halfway there, and it's April. I know, I know. We're going to have to raise the goal to, I don't know, maybe 80 I was going to say 75, but yeah, 80 is good. Okay. All right, 80 it is. Hi, and welcome to Happier in Hollywood, the podcast about how to be happier, healthier, saner, more creative, more successful, and more productive in a backbiting, superficial, chaotic, unpredictable, fundamentally insane world. I'm Sarah Fain, a TV writer and producer living in Ojai, right outside of L.A., and with me is my high school friend and writing partner, Liz. That's me, Liz Craft. On this podcast, we talk about being writers in Hollywood, how we balance a career in friendship, and how to survive the war of attrition that is life in Los Angeles. Today, we're going to talk about the mental gymnastics of going down two roads at once. Then we're going to talk to our friend Colin Campbell about his beautiful new book, Finding the Words, Working Through Profound Loss with Hope and Purpose. And this week's Hollywood hack comes from our good friend, Nichelle, of Get to Stepping fame. But first, Sarah, we have an update. In episode 308, we talked about the problem of free work. A lot of discussion about this in Hollywood right now. Casting director Nancy wrote in to say, casting directors are often asked to work for free during pre-production, especially on independent films. The reason is that they need to attach a name actor before the film greenlights. The CSA, Casting Society of America, discourages this practice, of course, as we all deserve to be paid for our profession, but there are times when the casting directors consider it when they really believe in the project. Yeah, and we also heard from a wardrobe stylist about this. It really is a big issue sort of across our industry. Yes. So that's interesting. Keep that coming. It's really fascinating to see who's doing free work out there. Also, Sarah, we want to remind everyone that we've got an upcoming spring listener questions episode. So email us with any questions, happierinhollywood at gmail.com. You can also send us a voice memo. Yes. It's time for our From the Treadmill Desk of segment in which we talk about what's most pressing in our work psyches. And this week, it's how we're dealing with the mental gymnastics of going down two possible roads at once. Yes. So... (laughs) there's one near future where we keep doing what we're doing, developing and writing scripts and 
who knows, maybe there will be a Fantasy Island season three. And of course, it's possible that we would take a job running another show. That's one road. Yes. And that's kind of our regular life. Yes. There's always questions about the future, but it's always in the vein of we're trying to work or are working on something. Yes. It's a lot of unknowns, but in the context of what we're used to. Now, the other road, Sarah, (laughs) as I think we've mentioned in passing on the podcast, is that the writers go on strike. So let me just explain for a moment for anyone who's not familiar with the WGA. The WGA is the Writers Guild of America. Every three years, we negotiate a new contract with the AMPTP. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. (laughs) Um, Who are the producers and studios, basically. And this particular cycle is very important because the business has changed so much and writers are making significantly less than they made in the past just because of how the business has changed. And we're addressing all of that. There's a real possibility that we could go on strike. In fact, this week we're voting on what's called a strike authorization. Yes. So all of the active members of the WGA will be sent a a ballot. Basically, you can say yes to strike authorization or no to strike authorization. Of course, the best thing to do, really, to avoid a strike is to say yes to strike authorization because it shows that we are unified and and really all acknowledge that these are big problems that need to be solved. So that will be happening over the next week. And then, and the strike authorization vote will come in well before May 1st, which is when the contract is up. And I mean, we'll just see. It's, it's yeah. So stressful. to be clear for anyone who who doesn't know, strike authorization is not the same as going on strike. Right. Strike authorization means that our negotiating committee has the ability to call a strike if they feel it's necessary. Yes. The hope is that by having the leverage of an overwhelming majority voting for it, they won't need to call a strike. Yeah. So. We're keeping both of these possibilities alive, but it's challenging. Like, it's the, the Robert Frostian poeticism of two paths diverging in a wood. It's, it is not. It is not that. No, it is not. There is nothing good about it. And yeah, Sarah, we are hoping there is not a strike. For I mean, sure. Very much so, because it not only impacts us, it impacts thousands, tens industry. and hundreds of thousands of other people. Um, who aren't writers. But if there is a strike, you and I have a plan to devote ourselves to writing our novel, which is something that we really want to do. So we're trying to create an upside for ourselves. Yes. <laughs> I mean, and it is an upside. I God knows I'd rather not be on strike, but it does help ease some of the stress of that particular possibility because it is something that we are excited about doing. And if we don't have a strike, it will be harder to make ourselves commit that time to do it. A hundred percent. We will feel the the urge to just try to get jobs of various yeah. kinds, as we yeah. always do. Um, so that that is something I'm glad we've set ourselves up for, because last time there was a strike in 2007, I mean, we didn't do any, I mean, we picketed a lot, but we didn't even think about writing something for ourselves. No, mm We did do a lot of picketing, though. That's true. (laughs) Yes, we did. We picketed our hearts out. Yes. (laughs) Which we'll have to do again. 
But look, at a certain point, the future will become clear. This isn't one of those things where, you know, we won't know for a long time. In a matter of probably weeks. For sure, yeah. We will have an answer to which path in the woods we are going down. (laughs) So we're just trying to remain calm, remain flexible. We're keeping moving forward on all fronts, which is a bit challenging, but it is important. Yes. So um, we'll be reporting on what happens with the strike, of course, in detail on the podcast. Indeed. If it happens, we'll have to, like, do an episode from outside the Fox lot or something. (laughs) Yes, for sure. I was telling Violet about how I met Mike Scully in 2007 when we were picketing. As did I, writer for The Simpsons. Yes, and she watches, she loves The Simpsons. It's her favorite show. So she was just like, oh my God, I will come with you to picket. (laughs) I remember talking to him. Very funny. Yes. Okay, coming up, we're going to talk to our friend Colin Campbell about his profound new book, Finding the Words. But first, this break. Liz, there is nothing I love more than having a delicious meal that I didn't have to cook, which is why I have been getting no prep, no mess meals from Factor. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. Last night, I had had blackened salmon with broccoli and with cauliflower rice. It was so delicious. It was the perfect dinner. Head to factormeals.com slash HIH50 and use code HIH50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code HIH50 at factormeals.com slash HIH50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Okay, Liz, here's some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, multiple systems, delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs, you cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems, and you improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hollywood. NetSuite.com slash Hollywood. NetSuite.com slash Hollywood. Recently, we recommended Colin Campbell's new book, Finding the Words. Today, we're lucky to have Colin here to talk with us. 
Colin Campbell is a writer and director for theater and film. He teaches screenwriting at Chapman University and theater at California State Polytechnic University. Colin's highly anticipated solo performance piece titled Grief, a one-man shit show, will be performed in Los Angeles and New York City this year. In his incredible new book, Finding the Words, Working Through a Profound Loss with Hope and Purpose, Colin shares his experience of losing both his children, Ruby and Hart, when a drunk driver hit their car and turned a pleasant family outing into the worst day imaginable. He addresses the fear, pain, denial, guilt, rage, despair, and isolation that accompanies grief and encourages readers to find community and ritual in the face of loss. And we've known Colin and his wife, Gail, for a couple of decades. They were some of the first people that we met um, when we moved to Los Angeles. Colin, welcome. Colin, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So, Colin, we would love to just start with Ruby and Hart, your amazing kids. Can you just Uh, tell us about them? (laughs) Yes, yes. So, Ruby was this amazing artist. She kind of discovered art late, not until she started struggling with OCD and depression, really heavily when she was maybe turned 14, and that's when she kind of discovered art as a way of expressing herself, visual visual art. And she went in deep and she just loved, you, you know, she would do a research on a, a computer and just a new, a new medium and be like, great, now I'm doing watercolors. And she'd be amazing at watercolors. You know, now I'm just gonna do pencil drawings of, of people. And they were just amazing. She was just an extraordinary, then she wanted to do animations by herself, you know, frame by frame. And she did this amazing animation sequence. Um, and uh, and the animation sequence that she did, the story she wanted to tell was of a Jewish lesbian vampire who fights Nazis. That nice. that was her story. A story <laughs> worth telling for sure. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, so she had this whole scenario where the there's this young Jewish woman in the ghetto. She she cross dresses as a man and joins and joins the the German army to escape from the, from the ghetto. And then while in the German army as a man, she's attacked by Russians and her troop is wiped out and she's bitten by a Russian um, vampire who turns her and then she becomes a Nazi fighting lesbian vampire. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Um, And, and, and Hart was, Hart was a, was a clown. He was a literally like a, a nonstop clown. He would just, generate characters so and all his friends knew all the characters had names so they'd call out oh do richard do richard (laughs) do sarah Uh, and and his characters were were always outrageous and always a little bit inappropriate um (laughs) but uh but it was like non-stop it was like i just remember being at the dining room table and saying like knock it off just eat your food just sit in the chair because he was always leaping out of his chair and acting like some crazy character so well and you and didn't so. you and gail meet in clown class so that <laughs> seems very appropriate sort of yes yes we did we did some clowning together in grad school and uh, yeah yeah <laughs> and I, I started a pratfall club and, okay. and she heard about my pratfall club and um from another state and so yeah wow. the rest is his clowning is clowning is in our family i guess yes Colin, the title of your book is Finding the Words. Why did you choose Finding the Words? Yeah, it, it, it felt um, 
so clear to me as I was grieving uh, the deaths of Ruby and Hart that that I needed to articulate what was happening to me in order to process it. In other words, when I was just sort of thinking about Ruby and Hart not being here, I was overwhelmed with this amorphous feeling of grief and sadness, and it was so overwhelming, and um, it seemed endless in all directions uh, and so scary. But when I started talking about it, when I started putting into words what I felt in the moment, even if they weren't particularly, you know, clever words or insightful words, it didn't really matter. Just the act of saying what was going on helped. And then, so there's that aspect of finding the words in grief. You know, how do we articulate what this experience is to us? And then also a huge component I realized was I, I wanted community in grief. I didn't want to be alone. There was so, so much loneliness and there were so many people in the grief groups I attended who felt uh, a secondary loss of all their, not all, but many of their friends and family who, who they felt abandoned them in their grief. And I really did not want that. I wanted to have my friends and family with me. And so I felt like I needed to articulate my needs to them so they could support me better. Um, and that, that's the second part of finding the words for me is like, as a griever, how do we, how do we really say what we need? Because it's not obvious. It's not clear. It wasn't clear to me what I needed. You know, it really, it took, it took me a lot of like thinking like what, what actually do I want people to be saying to me or what do I want to be talking about? Or, um, and, uh, and so I thought I'd have something to offer people in fresh grief, maybe who hadn't, um, hadn't processed that, like what, you know, what that, that idea of how, how do I express my needs? Well, it struck us reading the book how active and intentional you were in your grief. It, it was a very active, or is, I should say, a very active process. Yes. yes. And and you include so many actual things for people to do who are going through this, which I think is just going to help so many people. At what point did you start to be active, and how did you approach that? Yeah, I, I think I, it's sort of again, goes back to that feeling of that amorphous blob of grief and, and feeling like a victim. I, I felt like uh, I was a helpless victim. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't save my children. Um, and that made me feel like I, uh, I was just overwhelmed, you know. And then when I, I started taking actions, this started, you know, it, it was really the Jewish rituals of mourning that, that taught me that. Um, I'm not Jewish, but my wife is Jewish, and we raised Ruby and Hardy's Jews, and they were born by mitzvah, and were active members of our temple, and the, so the community is very meaningful to me. Um, and when it came time to mourn Ruby and Hart, I really leaned on the Jewish traditions because I didn't have any of my own. And some of those traditions involve rituals, involving creating your own ritual. So you mark the end of Shloshim, which is the first 30 days after the funeral. That's what Shloshim means, 30 you, you're supposed to mark it with some sort of a ritual, some sort of a ceremony, um, because you're entering a new stage of grief, right? So the first 30 days are, are particularly acute, and then you're moving to a, you know, a slightly less acute stage. And, um, and by creating that ritual, I, I, I got a lot of solace and connection, both to Ruby and Hart and my memories and my grief, but also to my community, because they were there too. And that sort of, I think, started, started the seed planting in my brain of like, oh, 
taking action in grief, that's very helpful. Really anything. When we, when we memorialize people who are gone, it's not just like, oh, I'm just lighting a candle and being sad, but I'm lighting a candle. I'm doing something. I'm honoring them. I'm taking, making space in my day for my grief. And it really helped me. Can you share, Colin, the ritual that you and Gail started at the Arboretum? I thought, I thought that was yeah. so beautiful. Thank you. That that was the end of Shoshin. That was the first ceremony we did um, that we created on our own. And, and so the um, the L.A. Arboretum is this beautiful park, um, and it's kind of it's kind of a little wild. It's very large and wild. And Ruby and Hart, we went there many times when we were kids, many many times. So we have all these memories of being in this park and climbing these specific trees. And Ruby used to climb up the um, the uh, bamboo poles, like 25 feet up into the air, wow. climbing up bamboo, bamboo <laughs> poles. It was sort of crazy. And then, and then once she and her friend, you know, sort of not fell, but they, they, they got very wet in the <laughs> pond. I guess they kind of fell into the pond. Yeah. So anyway, there, we have a lot of memories of that park and loving it. And in fact, uh, only about a month before they were killed, we went to the park, the four of mm. us, and had a really lovely time. Um, and so it was just very fresh in our minds, and we wanted to have the ceremony there because it was meaningful to us. And we wanted to dedicate two trees to Ruby and Hart. And so we went looking for the right trees, and the, the park ranger uh, um, took us to this remote corner, and we were looking at these trees, and then this family of coyotes just loped by inside mm-hmm. the park, like six or seven coyotes. And I was like, oh, my God, this place is amazing and wild. This is the right for us. And then we saw these two trees. It's their Engelman oaks, and their branches were literally intertwined. And it looked as if these two trees were holding on to each other, holding each other up. Um, and we thought, oh, there's, there's Ruby and Hart, you know. So we dedicated those two trees. I love that. And you talk so much in the book about how close they were and how much they held each other up in life as yeah. well. So it's so fitting. Yeah. yeah, thank you. Now, yeah. Colin, one thing you talk about which is just such a practical thing in your grief is the grief spiel that you and Gail uh, did for people. Um, there's an example in the book of a letter that that Gail wrote when she was going back to work to direct a TV show. Yeah. Will you talk about that? Because it seems like just such a helpful thing for you and the people around you. Yeah. Yeah. I love my grief spiel. Basically, people were very scared to talk to us early days like terrified they would come in you know through the front gate of our house and they would just be ashen and they wouldn't say anything they wouldn't even say like hi how are you because that seemed like potentially triggering how am i how do you think i am you know they had i I imagine they had all these fears of like they were going to upset us no matter what they said and we desperately wanted to talk to people we desperately wanted to talk about ruby and heart and this feeling of 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 terrifying grief because it was something we'd never felt before. And it was, it was so scary and overwhelming and we needed to process it with our friends. And so uh, it was, it was clear to us, we have to do something. We're not going to have conversations with people. If, if this is what it's like, they're walking on eggshells. They weren't, they weren't, some of them weren't even saying Ruby and Hart's names because they were terrified. Uh, and so we had to make it clear that it was okay. And so we developed this thing called the grief spiel that we made up, which is we pulled people aside one at a time and told them, you know, this is the deal. 
And the, the nice thing about it is that it could change. So in early, in very fresh grief, I had no bandwidth for really anything else but Ruby and Hart and my grief. I, I couldn't stand to talk about the weather, politics. Like, are you kidding me? They were just, my children were just murdered like a week ago. No. Um, and then that the, the grief spiel could evolve and, um, and, and it became less, um, uh, you know, less selfish in a way. You know, early grief is just so selfish because it's all we can think about is our pain. It's so overwhelming. Um, so it got to evolve. And then when it came time to go to work, we evolved our grief spiels even more and had more specificity because at that point we knew things that bothered us. So we didn't want, we didn't like hearing they're in a better place. We didn't like hearing things like, you know, uh, Jesus needed another angel in heaven, but that can help other people, but it didn't help us. So what was nice about the grief spiel is you can just tailor to exactly what you want. Um, and, and we did. And so her letter to her work colleagues, um, she does mention like, you know, religious faith can help people, but, but, but please don't, don't share your faith with me in this moment. Uh, um, so it was helpful to her to say those things. And also, also just to give people permission. Like, mm-hmm. it's okay to talk about the crash and Ruby and Hart. Um, it's not going to trigger us. And, and you actually put that letter in the book, which I thought was very eye-opening. So having that grief spiel there... I think it's really helpful for people, both who are experiencing grief and for people who are close to people experiencing mm-hmm. grief. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think grief is, is so much taboo around it. There's so much like the white elephant yes. in the room and everybody doesn't want to touch it. And uh, I think the more you can normalize it, the less scary it is for everybody on both sides. Yeah. yeah. And one thing you talk about in the book and in your one man show is this idea when people say, which I know I've said many times, like no words, there are no words uh-huh. and how that's not a helpful thing to say. Yeah. But again, yeah. hearing that from you, it, it is like Sarah said, just eye opening in terms of the process. Mm. Yeah. Because people want to be helpful. They want to say a helpful thing, but they, but, you know, what do you say? And so saying there are no words, I I understand where it comes from. It comes from obviously people trying to tell you that it's so terrible, but, um, that, and, and, and they're expressing it out of love. But for me, it, it did feel, first of all, everybody said it, like literally everybody. It was crazy how often people would say it, like, how, who taught you all? Like, where, where was the class that taught everybody to say this same exact phrase? Mm-hmm. We all just learn it somehow. But, um, but also the idea that that, it, that I needed words. And so yeah. to say there are no words kind of ends the conversation. And mm. it's so much better to try for different, for word, for real words rather than giving up, I guess, right. on language. You make a distinction in the book between suffering and despair. How, how are yeah. those different? Yeah, I, I got that idea from Megan Devine. I, I don't know if she's invented that idea or not, but... Um, but I definitely want to give her credit uh, for her book, um, It's Okay or Not Okay. But um, that was a book that really helped me early on in grief. And that idea of like, you know, the pain of grief is unavoidable. If you love somebody and they're gone, you have to feel pain. How how, how else could you not? You love them and they're gone. It's going to hurt. And that in a way is like healthy pain. It's like, it's, like, it's good pain. It, it's pain from love. But there's all this attendant suffering that happens so often to people grieving because then there's all these other things 
there's like guilt, there's like self-punishment, there's, um, there's all these regrets, there's, there's self-judgment, like judging yourself even as you grieve, like I'm not crying enough, I'm crying mm. too much. You know, mm. All these thoughts that come to you, um, they're unavoidable, but I think it helps to let them go, to categorize them as suffering, and we don't need that. That's not honoring Ruby and Hart, right? Me replaying in my mind the moments before the crash, that's not helping Ruby and Hart, and that's not really honoring their memories, and they wouldn't want me to be thinking that, and I, why not focus on the love we had instead? And so I, I try to let those, those punishing thoughts, I try to let them go as best I can, and I think categorizing them as suffering versus the healthy, necessary pain of grief is helpful to me. Well, Colin, it's interesting because Prince Harry in his book talked about how he mm. really believed his mother was alive for years after she died. Mm -hmm. He was in denial. And you talk about denial in the book. Can you talk about that? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I ultimately, uh, I, I say that denial is not our friend. <laughs> um <laughs> That, you know, maybe there's some sense where it, it's sort of cushioning the initial blow. Maybe, you know, everybody goes through denial. There's, there's no way to get around that. And I still have some denial because it's just so hard to comprehend that they're actually gone. So there's definitely sometimes parts of me that think, oh, wait, that, this can't be real. This can't be true. But I really don't like living in denial. I, I want to live in the real world. Um, I want to live in a world. I want to be able to find a way of holding my grief and live in the real world, you know, have both. I want to live and grieve. I don't want to deny my grief, uh, like, you know, I, you know, uh, put it in a box so I can live. I don't want to do that. And I don't want to sit in the grief where I deny the real world and just imagine life with Ruby and Hart. Um, so, uh, and again, the Jewish traditions help me with that yeah. because they ask the mourner to really re-engage with grief over and over again. You know, so for example, at the burial, you know, the, the, we, my wife and I, Gail and I, we had to, we had to, we, we were charged with putting dirt on the coffin with our own bare hands. So we're burying our children. And then we sat and watched the rest of our community continue to bury our children and finish the task. And that is like, wow, that's brutal. But it's also like, yeah, but we need that because we're in denial. We need to see them be buried so that we can somehow grapple with this denial and, and somehow come to grips with the truth, the reality that my, our children are dead. And so, and even, even saying the mourner's prayer, you're supposed to say the mourner's prayer every day for the first year. Mm -hmm. And you're supposed to say it in community. You're supposed to have nine people, at least nine people with you as you mourn, as you verbally, publicly mourn the death of your loved one uh, day after day. And that's, that's a kind of a beautiful reminder of like not compartmentalizing grief, not like saying, yeah, yeah, I, you know, my loved one died. I'll deal with it later. You know, right? Yeah. And a lot of people think that. They think like, oh, my mom died. I'm just not dealing with that right now. And, and the Jewish tradition for me taught me to be like, no, no, you've got you've to make space, mourn mom, and, and still live your day, you know? That's that's our task. How do we live and grieve at the same time? And one of the things you have done towards living is recently you and Gail have opened your home and your hearts to foster children. Can you share how yeah. that's going? 
Yeah, yeah. It's it's ongoing. Um, <clears throat> so I can't say I'm not being coy. I, I can't share too many personal details because as foster parents, we're, we're not allowed to um, bear information on social media. Yeah. Um, but um, but we're on we are we are on track to ultimately adopt them. So we oh. we have we have to be foster parents for a while, and then uh, if a certain amount of time goes by and and the parental rights are terminated, then you enter the actual adoption phase, and that can take a whole another year. Um, so it's a slow process. But they've been living with us for about three and a half months now, and they're they're brother and sister, thirteen and twelve year olds, and they're they're very wonderful, charming children who have endured an awful lot of trauma, right? Mm-hmm. That's, that's sadly the situation. If you're winding up in foster care, you've endured loss and trauma and grief. Um, and oftentimes a lot of neglect and maybe some abuse, you know, or a lot of abuse. Um, so it's a, it's a rough road. Uh, and we're, we're all four of us are on board. We're like, yeah, let's do it. Let's make this family. <laughs> But we are still like we just met each other three and three and a half months right. ago. So it's it's a process. We have to parent them. They're teenagers, and sort of biologically, when you hit like thirteen, you're supposed to pull away from your parents, right? You're supposed to start that process of becoming independent. But we're like, you can't pull away from us yet. We haven't bonded yet. <laughs> right? You got to stay here and bond with us first before you start pulling away as a teenager. <laughs> And we have to make, you know, active parenting, like, do your homework. No, do your homework. Yeah. <laughs> so um, it's not, it's not like, it's not the warm and, the total warm and fuzzy thing that you, you might imagine if you watched Annie, for example, right? Right. <laughs> Annie doesn't get into homework. Do you know what I mean? Annie's just like, here, have a lollipop and hooray. Yes, it's yes. Wonderful. And it's just like, okay, what about the active parenting part? <laughs> so, uh yeah, but no, but but it's it's um it's also a further way for us to lean into the pain of grief, honestly, because mm-hmm. it is in no way somehow like you know moving past Ruby and Hart. <laughs> we think about Ruby and Hart all the time. How could we not? Because here's a boy and a girl in our home, in their rooms, mm-hmm. and we're parenting in the same space, and um, so it's a uh, it's emotionally rough. But good. It feels. I say in my in my play. I have a my one man show. I have a, a line at the end that says it. It hurts, but it feels good to stretch our hearts. Mm-hmm. And that's definitely what it feels like. It feels like uh, I'm feeling a lot of pain, and I'm going to open my heart up, and and we're going to find some love together. But ooh, <laughs> it's a ride. Yeah. yeah. Well, Colin, I re- we just think you're going to help so many people with this book. It's really a beautiful book. It's also just gripping. I mean, in addition to being incredibly helpful, it's, it's also, I mean, just an amazing read, if I could say that. (laughs) Yeah. So thank you for writing it. Yeah. And thanks for joining us. It's great to see you. Thanks for joining us, Colin. Yeah. It's so nice to spend time with you guys. Coming up, we've got a Hollywood hack from our friend, Nichelle. But first, this break. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. 
You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Okay, it is time for this week's Hollywood hack. And Sarah, this is a hack that you got from our friend Michelle, also on the topic of grieving. Yes, and there are so many kinds of grieving, but one that unfortunately most of us will experience is losing a parent. And after my dad died, which was in 2018, my God, is that accurate? Wow. Um, Yeah, so anyway, after my dad died in 2018, I got a card from our friend Nichelle, and it was a picture out a window in Paris— And I was like, "Hmm, this is interesting. And I opened it, and in her note, she said that picture was of the moment after her mom died several months later uh, where she started to feel like everything was going to be okay. Like it was kind of the first moment where she kind of felt light again. And she took a photo of of her view at the moment. And she took a picture out her window. She was in Paris. And it was so beautiful and touching and really helped me. And then several months later, I had that moment. I was was not in Paris. I was walking down to Hunga Boulevard in North Hollywood um, (laughs) with Violet and our dogs. And I took a picture of it because I thought, okay, this is like a moment I need to remember. And I have since shared that picture with other people who are going through the grieving process because it really helped me. It made me think, okay, this is, I'm not going to always feel like this. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Nichelle is such a beautiful, compassionate, thoughtful person. Yes. So copying her in any form is something we should all do. But I, I, as a Hollywood hack, I highly recommend it as just a like human being hack. Yes. So, so thoughtful. Yes. I love that. Okay, every week one of us is going to offer a recommendation of book or podcast or TV show or movie that we are loving right now. It doesn't have to be something new, just something we like. And Liz, this week you have a recommendation. Yes, Sarah, I am recommending Traders on Peacock. So first of all, let me say I put up a poll on Instagram asking people, should I watch Traders? And the overwhelming response was, yes, I should. So I did. Um, And it is a reality competition show based on an Australian format. And it's an elimination show, um, like so many. Uh, Takes place in a castle in Scotland and is hosted by Alan Cumming, who wears the most amazing over-the-top outfits. And it's, I'd say it's Survivor meets Big Brother, but it really is a cut above. It's just totally engrossing and entertaining. Um, And if you want a distraction, I do recommend Traders on Peacock. This is a recommendation I think I'm going to follow. Yes. (laughs) Let me know what you think. Okay. And that is it for this episode of Happier in Hollywood. For questions or comments, email us or send us a voice memo to happierinhollywood at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and please follow us if you haven't already. Thank you so much to Colin Campbell for joining us today. Read his book, Finding the Words. 
Thank you to our executive producer, Chuck Reed, and everyone at Sancola Sound. You can follow them on Instagram at Sancola Sound. Thanks to everyone at Cadence 13. And as always, thank you to Gretchen Rubin. Happier in Hollywood is part of the Onward Project. Listen to the other Onward Project podcasts, Happier with Gretchen Rubin, Side Hustle School, and Everything Happens with Kate Bowler. Get in touch. I'm on Instagram at Fain, and Liz is at Liz Craft. We also have a Facebook group. Search for Happier in Hollywood on Facebook to join in on the conversation. Until next week, I'm Liz Craft. And I'm Sarah Fain. Thanks for joining us. It's a fun job. And we enjoy it. Did you do an egg hunt? No. Violet was like, she just wasn't into it. Oh, Jack. She didn't want to dye eggs. Oh, he does? That's good. Yeah, we don't dye eggs, but he likes the egg. Well, he likes getting the candy. Yeah. We went to Benihana. Oh, that's good. We were going to do something for dinner, but it did not happen. Instead, we watched Alice in Wonderland, the old Alice in Wonderland. Mm. From the Onward Project.